Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the interesting things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta and I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And this podcast is a weekly podcast where we discuss some of the innovations that are happening in the area of biotechnology. The idea is to eventually see these hit the field to improve crop growth with fewer inputs. That's why we're doing this. And today we're going to talk with Dr. John Christie, who's a professor in uh, Glasgow, Scotland. But before we do that, uh, we'll talk with Amber Boas. And Amber, Amber, so how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. It's really nice to have you on. Uh, I appreciate uh, so much of the things that you've done here, and it's been good to know you in social media and stuff. But um, can you tell a little bit about your background in plants and how you became a plant enthusiast? Um, sure. I I, uh, I grew up gardening um, with my parents and also my grandmother gardened. She had wonderful gardens. Um, and I just, I think from an early age, I just really um, was very, just was exposed to it. I had lots of vegetable gardens and, and flowers all around. And um, so as a child, I just was very involved in that um, through my parents and uh, family. So there were some events that have happened in more recent times that caused you to really scale up your interest in uh, horticulture or growing plants in general. So what the heck happened? <laughs> um, I I think it started about 10 years ago. Probably I, I moved into the house where I live now. Um, it's just was about to have my first child. Um, I sort of had my own little yard that we, we had just bought this house. It needed lots of work in the yard. And so I just got very into planting things and redoing the yard. And I started going to plant swaps, which was kind of my intro into, I don't know, Florida, Florida flowers and really learning more about uh, vegetables and flowers that grow here. So I got very involved in that. I just started collecting plants and those plant swaps are a great way to just connect with local people who know a lot about horticulture. And um, so I just started collecting stuff and I've just become um, I've I've got a whole uh, whole menagerie of plants here. It didn't make everybody happy that you decided to grow every plant that you could find, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and I I did get into trouble eventually with the HOA. So I, I do live in a it's sort of an older neighborhood, but it does most places here in Florida have HOAs. Um, if you're in any kind of neighborhood, and um, there was one event just a couple years ago where I. I started moving into the front yard where I, I, I had wood chip mulch dumped from a tree trimmer in the front yard. And I spread it all out and I planned to do this great um, flower garden in the front and then got in trouble with the HOA. So I had to I had to work with them and try to figure out how to how I could do a Florida friendly, friendly landscape in the front yard where it would satisfy them and me. And I eventually did get it. Um, but, yeah, it's it's hard to do that sometimes in in Florida, you have you do struggle with the HOAs trying to restrict you. Well, yeah, that's the HOA. That's the Homeowners Association. I know I know. every place I've ever lived, I've not had one. 
and where I live right now, it's, you know, I mean, I live out in the country, so nobody cares what I do out there. So um, it's bonfires and any crazy plant I want, shooting guns, we can do whatever. We <laughs> Our, my neighborhood is a lot of fun, the mm-hmm. things that happen out there. But you also do some work in terms of social media. And I know that you've done some articles recently regarding issues like the glyphosate issue. And what did you write and where could people find it? Um, well, I, I wrote um, sort of my first uh, article on this particular topic, which is, um, it was why I why I don't hate glyphosate. Um, <clears throat> and that was sort of in response to um, all the stories that were coming out about just the, the uh, court cases. And there's been just so much, um, so much media about glyphosate <laughs> recently that's very negative. And... Um, I, I do use glyphosate in the garden. I've um, used it when, you know, when we I did all the front yard gardening like that. I, I did have grass coming up underneath all the mulch and stuff because I didn't kill the grass first. Um, I just put the mulch down. And so, it, you know, you have little spots where you need to spray glyphosate to really get rid of the weeds that, that are very persistent. Um, that's one of the best the best tools that I can use uh, for that application. I I really do think that it's it's very safe and effective. And that's one of the things that, um, I just feel passionate about. I, I've, I've had so many experiences on social media in garden groups. I'm in so many online garden groups and, um, also, uh, doing stuff with extension where people in the community, people online are very negative about glyphosate and you try to correct that information, misinformation, and it doesn't always go very well. <laughs> well, but, but your, your personal approach really was very effective. And I really liked the article that you wrote. But you mentioned extension. You're doing some work, not as a, an official person of an extension appointment at the University of Florida, but as a volunteer. And so where do you work to do your extension volunteering and what kind of things do you do? Yeah, so I, I got involved with that uh, a couple of years ago as well, um, where I just sort of reached a tipping point where I was just so, I had gained a lot of knowledge about plants and I was just getting more and more interested in plants and also communicating um, this information to the public. And so I I found out that Extension does use volunteers to communicate uh, horticulture information to the public. And so I went through their program to do that where I'm just, I I just go out and I kind of disseminate the information from uh, UF, IFAS, and other land-grant universities, um, and just give that research-based information to the public. And that's, it sort of combines two of the things that I'm really interested in, which is, is just, um, just gardening in general. And and I know a lot about plants um, and telling people that information from a science-based perspective. And that's, both of those are really, really important to me right now. So it kind of combines my two interests that way. You also have a good account on Medium. And so people can find your work there. Uh, yes, that's that's right. But today we're going to talk with uh, Dr. John Christie. And John is a um, old friend. He's someone who I've really uh, just admired his work for a very long time. And he did some incredible work back as a postdoctoral researcher in the late 1990s to put a biochemical face on what was a genetic identification of a molecule which was apparently causing um, issues with blue light sensing. And it turned out to be a light sensor for blue light. And now we go to Glasgow, Scotland, to the University of Glasgow, where we talk with Professor John Christie. Hey, John, good to to talk to you today. You too. You too, Kevin. Good to to speak to you. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you. It's been way too long. And and before we get started, I wanted to see if you had any thoughts that you would like to share 
about your postdoc mentor, Dr. Winslow Briggs. Discoveries of yours in his laboratory really are at the basis of today's discussion. And we just lost him a few weeks ago. And it's really sad. It was a sad time for everybody in our community. But could you share a few moments about memories with him and maybe some ideas about things you learned under his guidance? Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. So Winslow, is, he'll be a big loss to the, the community. He was a, a pioneering, pioneering figure from all different aspects, whether it was scientific or personally. So I had the great fortune of being a, a postdoctoral researcher with Winslow. And I started with him back in um, 1997. So even at that age, Winslow was almost 70, but he was um, so enthusiastic um, towards his science. And he still had 20 years left of instrumental key um, major findings to bring through in the scientific community. He was a great leader and he's going to be sorely missed. Um, he really brought the community together from various different angles. So um, I, I think I, I speak for everyone that saying that he will be sorely missed. I agree with you a thousand percent. I, I think the thing that I remember most about him was here is a scientist where if anybody deserved to have, who, who maybe could have a little chip on his shoulder, you know, who would have that license, uh, it would be him. And he never did. That if you were at a meeting, he would be at posters talking to undergraduates and valued their input and valued their their um, discussion and, and treated them with respect. And he just was so good to, and so kind to everybody. And, and you're right, he, he would really be missed. And you know, you're, you're a lucky guy to have uh, <laughs> studied with him, that's for sure. <laughs> no, very, very, very lucky. And uh, yeah, you're right there. There was just no barriers with Winslow. He would, he would talk to anybody about science or uh, he, was, he was instrumental. Well, with that in mind, you know, we really can talk about your paper, which came out in the journal Science, which really has to do with photosynthesis and the, uh, removing the breaks from one of the limiting steps in photosynthesis that eventually leads to some positive effects in plants. Amber, you know, I know that you were interested in, in some of the aspects of this, but is there anything that you feel would be a good place to kick this off? Photosynthesis is the process of converting atmospheric carbon dioxide into carbohydrates for structure and metabolism. But uh, what, what is the role of the stomata in the process and why do they limit the photosynthesis? Okay, that's a good question. So much of the work, I should add, that we've done is in collaboration with Professor Mike Blatt's group. So he is a, a stomatophysiologist, so he's the, the expert here. But as you know, photosynthesis requires light energy, um, but plants also need CO2 in order to fix um, into sugars, and they get that CO2 from the atmosphere. And stomata are the key players here. So these are pores in the lower leaf epidermis of, um, of the plant, which are involved in uptake of um, CO2 for photosynthesis. So you can view them sort of like mouths. I mean, stomata is Greek for mouths. And their aperture, the opening of the mouth, can um, change. So they can open to um, uptake CO2 to be fixed by photosynthesis. And they can also close um, when light conditions are low or in the dark. And this is to limit water loss um, from the plant. So plants, if you will, they also sweat and they lose water. And this is um, the major driving force of transpiration. So this is the, the water circuitry that comes from water intake at the roots um, and is transported up through to the leaves. The, the interesting part of this, though, is that where so many aspects of photosynthesis are relatively rapid, almost instantaneous in some ways, uh, stomatal opening and closing is kind of slow. So well, why are they slow? 
when we think about um, the light environment, changes can be instantaneous and so rapid. And it's um, difficult for um, the regulation of this this mouth size in the in the stomata basically to um, coincide exactly with these light changes. So fluctuations in the light environment um, can happen on um, instantaneously, um, and this is just hard to keep up. So I think throughout um, evolution there is a kind of trade-off here because the light changes are so variable, and um, stomata opening and closing um, needs to change in a certain extent to um, avoid sort of trade-offs between water loss and CO2 uptake. Is there any advantage to being slow? Is In terms of evolution, wouldn't that be, would there be sort of a reason for that? Would it be something that has an advantage? Sure, yeah. So if you um, think about uh, water loss um, individually, then you would uh, like to close your stomata uh, as rapidly as possible, certainly when you transition into a low-light environment or in darkness so you can minimize that water escape from the plant. So if you want to um, increase sort of your water use efficiency, that is how much sort of carbon that you're being able to fix per um, water molecules, then this is something that would be an advantage. Well, the, I guess the flip side of that is, couldn't we just decrease the number of stomata or increase it? I mean, there's plenty of mutations and evidence from the literature that shows that there are genes that control stomata number. Why not just go that way? Yeah, good question. So um, it's simply when you think about the opening and closing of stomata, you're thinking about entry of CO2 and you're thinking about um, water loss through vapor. These are tightly connected. So if you want to decrease the amount of stomata, essentially you would probably increase um, water use efficiency, but also limit the amount of CO2 you can um, uptake. And vice versa would happen. So if you increase the amount of uh, stomata that you have, you've got an increased potential to uptake CO2, but also you have an increased potential to lose water. So it's very difficult to uncouple those two tightly regulated processes. So if those two processes are so tightly coupled and you have one thing you can't lose and one thing you need, how do the plants deal with that? Yeah, it's a complicated process because it's quite fundamental. So there's many factors that can control stomatal opening. Um, and many factors that can control um, stomatal closure. So in our case, one thing that I've been interested in for some time is that we know that light changes in the light environment can lead to changes in the opening and closing of stomata. Also, under uh, water limiting conditions, there are other pathways that can regulate stomata so they close to minimize um, um, water loss. So it's, it's quite a highly complex process with many factors taking place. And so really with that, well, let's just take a short break here. And we're speaking with Professor John Christie. He's a professor in the Institute of Molecular Cell and Systems Biology at the University of Glasgow over in Scotland. We'll be right back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. If you've been reading on the internet lately, you know that the question has been raised about how the Talking Biotech podcast is funded. I can see why. This would come up again and again. It's a high-quality, professionally-produced podcast like this must depend on deep pockets from some major agricultural concern. I'm not sure they're getting your sarcasm on that. Well, I, I certainly can vouch for the fact that this is a volunteer effort. As the booth announcer for the Talking Biotech podcast, I get a lousy cup of coffee and... I pick up the donuts from the box that Kevin doesn't want. That's it. 
but that's okay. This enterprise is not about making a buck, it's about sharing science. The podcast is 100% funded by Fulda personally, and no outside funding is considered. Go ahead, try us, send us a check for a million dollars, and see if you don't get it right back. The real payment for the effort is the flood of kind words, the growing numbers of downloads, and the great questions that we get from listeners like you. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Professor John Christie. He's a professor at the Institute for Molecular, Cell, and Systems Biology at the University of Glasgow. And we're joined by Amber Boas, who's a plant enthusiast who does some work in social media. Really talking about some new innovations which lead to the possibility of being able to increase photosynthetic assimilation into plant biomass. And this last week in the journal Science. So, John, the, you know, the, the solution you proposed was to really manufacture this light regulated switch that could open stomata and it's it's really a, a synthetic approach what does this molecule look like and where did you get the hardware so we got this hardware so this was work um, that we did in collaboration with anna moroni's group in um, from milan in italy so anna moroni was interested in um, trying to engineer an artificial light um, regulated potassium channel that she could use to control um, neural function. Um, and this is something that we built on from there. So the components that we, we made artificially stem from research that I've done for a lot of years now. And it was actually research that I started when I was with um, Winslow Briggs at Stanford. So we actually took a component, um, a light regulatory component from a photoreceptor in plants this is a component that's known as the love domain. And we've fused it to a prototype potassium channel um, to make an artificial light regulated potassium channel that could transport potassium across a membrane um, in response to light. So John, you talk about the love domain and the love domain is comes from a or a light receptor in plants, one that you discovered back in the 1990s using genetic approaches. Could you tell us a little bit more about that receptor and what wavelengths it responds to and how much light it takes to really trigger that receptor? Ah, okay, so for um, this receptor, it's um, a receptor that um, plays a number of roles in plants. So it controls um, what's known as the, the phototropic response. So phototropism is the directional growth response of plant stems towards a light source in order to um, maximize light capture for photosynthesis. So it's really important, especially for seedling establishment, as the, 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 the seedling emerges from the soil, it needs to seek a light source in order to start to change its growth into photosynthetic growth. And the receptor that we work with is the photoreceptor that um, we identified with Winslow Briggs that controls this response and it's a it's a uva and um, blue light photoreceptor so it it absorbs uva wavelengths in addition to to blue light wavelengths and it and it does that by binding a particular specific cofactor so it it's a um, a protein that binds a, a flavin based uh, cofactor that allows it to absorb these wavelengths that's great. And then when you mentioned the love domain, the love domain really is a part of the protein that binds that cofactor. And so the idea there is that, that the, the love domain is this chemistry that now can be activated when a photon of blue or UVA light hits it. 
Is that the only part of the photoreceptor that's made its way into your synthetic light switch? Um, primarily. So we, we take a small portion of the photoreceptor, which is essentially the, the photo switch, the, the light regulated switch. Um, for the photoreceptor that we work with, it controls a specific activity. Um, it's actually a kinase that phosphorylates itself and other proteins in order to signal to bring about um, responses such as photosynthesis. Um, in our case, what we've done is just take that small photo switch and we've fused it to uh, a protein that functions as a, 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 as a potassium channel. So what we've done is hijacked the photosensory mechanism of this light switch and created an artificial light switch. Uh, can you explain why you chose the potassium channel? Why choose that particular one? Why is that important for the stomata opening? Good question. So that's a good question. So um, I've described opening and um, closing of stomata. So these are pores, but the pores are surrounded by what's known as guard cells. So there's two guard cells, and it's the swelling and shrinking of these guard cells that define the opening and closing of these pores. And the swelling and shrinking of these, um, of these guard cells is, is dependent largely on ion transport across the membrane and primarily potassium transport. So this is why we wanted to insert um, an artificial light-activated uh, potassium channel into the guard cells in order to try and manipulate primarily their opening as well as their closing responses. Is this what they call optogenetics? Yep, you're correct. This is an approach that's being defined as optogenetics. So this is a technology that was primarily instigated by a need for light-driven tools for the neurosciences. So neurosciences have long been waiting for a tool that they could use to manipulate neural function by um, light. And these tools that have been developed are essentially um, light-regulated uh, um, ion transport tools. They're either channels or um, pumps that transport ions into or out of the cell. And you can use these tools to modify the electrochemical changes within a neural cell in order to either activate them or to deactivate them. So that's what drove the basis for um, the technology optogenetics. And this, that's simply what we've done here in plants. So it's the first demonstration of using this technology in plants whereby you can take a piece of genetically encoded information. In our case, it's a light-regulated uh, potassium channel. Put that into the guard cell of Arabidopsis and use that to augment um, processes which are related to opening and closing of the stomata. Yeah, I guess, but the question that comes to mind for me is that if you change the potassium flux in a light-regulated way all over a plant, the plant's going to be a mess. Were you able to confine this specifically to guard cells? And how did you do that? Yeah, so we just, again, used a trick from um, the technologies that have been used in the neurosciences for optogenetics. So instead of um, expressing our tool all over the plant, we can specifically target the expression of our tool in the guard cell by using a specific promoter. So there are um, specific promoters that will only express um, proteins inside the guard cell. And we just hijacked one of those promoters to drive expression of the tool inside the guard cell. And when you actually did the experiments in the paper, you did these experiments in FOT1, FOT2 mutants. So these were plants that were missing both copies of the blue light receptor um, in the stomata as well as the rest of the plant. Why was it important to use that mutant as a background for your experiment? So this was uh, an experiment that 
was based on principally defining whether our tool was functional in uh, plants. So the phototropins I mentioned earlier, these are receptors that control phototropism, but they also control other responses such as light-induced stomatolopening. And in the phototropin deficient mutant, you no longer get stomatal opening in response to light. So phototropins, as I mentioned, they are blue light receptors. So they respond to blue light to open stomata. And they do this by um, a big signaling pathway that ultimately ends up by driving potassium influx into the guard cell to cause the swelling, which then leads to opening of the stomatal pore. So the first thing that we wanted to do was see whether we could express our light-regulated potassium channel inside the guard cells of uh, the phototropin-deficient mutant to see if you could restore blue light-induced stomatal opening by driving um, artificially blue light-induced potassium transport across the, the guard cell plasma membrane. Uh, how much did this approach of optogenetics speed up the stomatal response? Did it just make them faster, or did it make it more sensitive to lower amounts of light too? Um, primarily, the benefit that we're seeing from this um, is an increase in the speed of opening and the increase in speed of closure. So from the data that we have from Arabidopsis, you're looking at a, a modest sort of increase. So kinetically, you have a twofold increase in um, kinetics of opening and also a twofold um, increase in kinetics for, for closure. Um, so that's the major benefits that we saw by expressing this light-regulated potassium channel in uh, uh, wild-type background of Arabidopsis. So you have the normal blue light-induced signaling pathway for stomata operative, but we've also augmented that and increased that by expressing the light-regulated potassium channel. I guess the big take-home message is that the plants had significantly more biomass with your engineered switch. And how much of that is really the fresh weight or you know, just water weight, or is there actually more assimilated carbon? From the studies that we've done, there seems to be more assimilated carbon over the um, duration of the experiment. So um, what we've seen primarily under fluctuating light conditions. So these are light conditions that are more... Um, apparent to those that occur in nature, where you've got changing light and intensities due to um, cloud cover and that sort of thing. Um, when we do a lab experiment um, sort of based on those conditions, what we find is that over the, the, um, the average time point of the experiment, the plants will accumulate more dry biomass and they will process uh, carbon assimilation more efficiently in terms of water use efficiency. It seems like it would have a lot of potential applications um, in terms of sustainable ag agriculture, especially just in terms of plants losing water and saving water. Are you working on genetic, genetically engineered plants and when would those be hitting the field? Yes, that's something that we're looking forward to doing in the future. Um, what we're trying to do now is take the technology that we've used with our model um, species Arabidopsis and move that to agronomically important uh, crops such as um, brassica, barley, that are important for um, the economy here. And we want to try and test whether we can use the same sort of principle to improve um, carbon assimilation, water use efficiency and growth in those plant species. Uh, this will primarily be um, in collaboration with other groups that are have the technology and the facilities to carry out these experiments and primarily they will be initially glasshouse-based experiments 
But um, in the long term, this is something that could potentially have an application in the field. Yeah, I guess I think along the same lines. It, have you gone and done the next generation of experiments, say, under really water-restricted conditions or places where it would matter to have your stomata closed, you know, where, where they would be really important in terms of plant health and survival. Uh, have you done those kinds of experiments yet? Yeah, so we've done those experiments with the Arabidopsis. So again, we've taken um, um, similar light conditions where the light is fluctuating, but we've um, restricted uh, the amount of water that we've given to the plants. And the, the plants that we made that contain the light-activated uh, potassium channel um, definitely perform better in comparison to plants that don't. That's really cool. The thing I always think about is that when you open up one barrier to say something like photosynthesis that's really complex, you really hit the next barrier. And so what's the next thing that needs to be resolved in order to increase the efficiency of the whole machine? Or is really, was this the limiting factor? Um, I guess you could combine this sort of approach with other approaches. So um, whether you're looking at increasing photosynthetic potential by targeting the photosynthetic processes themselves within chloroplasts, um, you might use this as a combinatorial approach where you could um, um, use this technology in addition to other technologies that have focused more on the photosynthetic machinery instead. Um, I was just wondering how since this application, you could produce uh, more food with less inputs, um, reducing water, things that environmentalists care about. If this will, if this will help to make this more acceptable to the regulators and the public, uh, hopefully, hopefully in the long term. Um, you're right; there it has an environmental impact. So, um, irrigation um, accounts for most of our water use in the world, and that seems to be increasing at quite an alarming rate and how we control that in the future will depend on technologies like this. So hopefully this will um, persuade people that it is important to have technologies like this, even though they are transgenic. Is the model response the same across all plants? Would this be universally, universally applicable to all different kinds of plants or better in some plants? Stomatal responses vary among different plant species. So um, some species, such as um, barley, have a very slow closing response. So this technology might be more effective when you try this technology in such a species. But the stomatal uh, function in uh, monocots might be, and probably is, very different to that in dicots. So the subsid subsidiary cells that surround the guard cell also have an important role to play. And what we know about those um, cells and their function is still sort of... Um, uh, limited. So there's a lot of work to be done at the basic level to try and understand uh, stomatophysiology in these species. If people want to learn more about the project or maybe follow the project on the internet or social media, where would they look? My Twitter handle is at photoaddict. Um, and you can also get information from um, my colleague Maria Papanatsiu. Her Twitter handle is at m underscore Papanatsiu. If anybody wants more information, I'll include a link to the uh, website, which really has highlighted this particular story. And I should mention that it's photoadduct, A-D-D, or A-D-U-C-T, not yes. addict, yes, photo -addict. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this kind of, uh, just want to make sure that you're not, uh, you know, jonesing for some light treatment. Um, that That's great. Well, thank, Professor John Christie, thank you so much for joining me. It's really nice to hear your voice. Thanks, guys.
And, and thank you, Amber, for joining me today on the podcast. It's really uh, nice to have you on as a co-author. A co-author. It's nice to have you as a co-host. I know that, uh, should I mention before, that after Hurricane Irma, you were one of the people who drove all the way out to the middle of nowhere from Orlando to help reestablish um, tens of thousands of blueberry bushes that got blown down. And I, it was really sweet that you came out and lent a hand. So thank you very much. Thank you. That was um, – I- yeah, I remember that too. And that was really, that was my first time meeting you in person. And I was, I was really thrilled to do that because I'd been listening to your podcast for a long time. I'm a, a huge fan of the podcast and um, it's just been one of the resources that's helped me uh, as a lay person who doesn't, who is not a scientist, try to understand science better. And you do such a great job of communicating um, these on these topics and, and doing so much outreach to people like me who are really interested, but are not scientists and I really, I want to thank you for that. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you so much for doing this with me today. It was really a pleasure to have you on and you're welcome back anytime, you know. Okay, (laughs) great. This was fun. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Okay. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write reviews, share with friends, do all the things that help us expand our audience. Because like Amber, there's a lot of folks who do have an interest in these topics and just don't know a good place to start. And I'd like that to be here. So thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.